Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This week, a conversation with the writer David Michaelis. His first biography, published in 1998, examined the artist N.C. Wyeth. His second, published in 2010, was about Peanuts cartoonist Charles Schultz. After working with the families for those authorized cradle-to-grave works, McCallis searched for a new subject and a different circumstance. While researching the Schultz book, he'd stumbled upon a trove of Eleanor Roosevelt's old newspaper columns, and the idea had taken hold. The seed had been planted when he was a little boy, and his mother worked on the television interview show that starred Mrs. Roosevelt. He'd met her only once, but she'd left an enormous impression. His book about the First Lady, over a decade in the making, was published in October 2020. I really wanted to write a book, a biography, full-length, birth-to-death, cradle-to-grave biography, of someone whom I could get to know for themselves, and on their terms and mine, meaning there was no need to get permission from anybody or have a relationship with anybody that would be not Eleanor. Eleanor Roosevelt's papers, Eleanor gave her papers to the people of the United States. So you, Lisa Napoli, and anyone listening could go and write a biography today uh, by applying for nothing more than an admission, you know, an entry card at the FDR library where 1 million documents await you. And there are there are 50 states in which, well, I think it's actually 48 states in which really ser- significant collections of Eleanor Roosevelt letters and papers also exist in academic libraries. She is a highly documented figure and, and rightly so. I mean, she, her life spans from the Victorian, really Victorian age, Edwardian, slash Edwardian age to the atomic age. And so her, her life is an, has enormous scale. The documentation is enormous as are the secondary, um, now secondary sources. But what I really felt strongest about when I began was how do I get to know her for herself and how do do I get closest to to this figure, this historical figure? She's very hard to know. Aside from the overwhelming volume of source materials were the many previous volumes written about Mrs. Roosevelt, including the three-volume biography by Blanche Wiesen Cook, which revealed Eleanor's love affair with reporter Lorena Hickok. I had once reviewed Blanche Wiesen Cook's second volume for the, for the New York Observer. You know, I, I really admired Blanche Cook's approach to Eleanor, uh, especially the way she was fearlessly discovering Eleanor's passion. But I also, and I don't think my, my review was, was thoroughly positive because I was so excited by it, and particularly about the subject of Eleanor Roosevelt and how Blanche Cook was treating her. But I, as a rule, felt, I mean, I, as a rule, I'm not crazy about multi-volume biographies. I feel like you have to really earn the reason for it. And I think, you know, in some ways, Caro has persuaded us with Johnson that, or, or maybe Johnson has persuaded Caro, and therefore he's persuaded us that power is a worthy topic over five books. And, and I'm not sure LBJ, but power is certainly something that's worth spending five books after you've already written The Power Broker, sure. But with Eleanor and, and Blanche, I would only say this, that I just felt that she was getting lost and that, that her archives and her, the record of her is so 
enormous already that I wanted a more chiseled Rushmore like view of her. Like I wanted to see her whole and I really felt it. I really felt that in my, in my bones that, that, that the thing I could do. And then this was confirmed one day when I was beginning research and the FDR library is one of the nicest places that as everyone who's ever worked there will tell you is to, to work. And, and I was um, watching one day after having spent most of the spring there, I was watching the quite horrifying to me transporting of a, of a million documents in cartons from the back room into storage, which really frightened me. The new Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. research room was going to, was undergoing renovations. And as these documents were taken to storage, I saw the full scale of them. And I literally was pale. It was terrifying. You feel you have to see everything. You feel you have you, anything, you're gonna miss something. And the panic at 4 a.m. is that you're gonna miss the most important thing and that someone else may have seen it or will see it. Or, and it's not, the, it's not just discovering you know, the, box, the shoe box full of letters that no one's seen. That's obviously magic, but it's, gosh, don't miss what's right in front. Of, the hidden in plain sight stuff is sometimes the most important thing of all. So there I was seeing the million documents and Bob Clark, this wonderful man who was then the supervisory, supervisory archivist, therefore in charge said to me, Ah, uh, you know, I, I see what's happening. You know, I, you're not you're not alone. People, this has happened to others, David. What's happening to you right now? You know, the sort of terror of Everest is happening to you. He said, but that's why you're here. You're here not as a collector. You're here as a selector. We need a select a, a selective biography, not cherry picked. There literally wasn't a one volume biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. As he immediately recognized, the story required vast 360-degree knowledge of the time in which Eleanor lived and the supporting characters around her, most notably her husband. My American history was pretty good, but I needed lots of reading and lots of crash courses in certain aspects. It is breathtaking, the numbers of American, of his, his world historical and American historical eras, epochs, and periods her life covers that you really need to know something about to understand her place in them. So there was that. But also with Eleanor, there was a feeling I had that this is, this is Franklin Roosevelt's wife. But if you're writing a biography that's going to be about Eleanor Roosevelt, well, guess what? You can turn the tables. You're not going to have to spend much time on Franklin because you're here for Eleanor. Nope. It was one of my first great shocks, along with just the, the amount of material there was. You have to know a great deal about Franklin Roosevelt. And if your American history is not, you know, if you weren't, you know, magna cum summa cum laude in history, then you're going to have to catch up on that. But I really had to catch up on Franklin. And that was something I had not expected. And when I realized how much time that was going to take, that freaked me out a little bit too. He signed the contract with Simon & Schuster to write the book in 2010 and was to deliver it in 2015. Along the way, woken by the 4 a.m. panic and recognizing the enormity of the work before him, he'd have lunch with his editor, Alice Mayhew, and say, I can just feel it's more than five years. By the way, the first time I ever signed up for a biography, I heard the words that every writer dreams of hearing from my then editor, at Knopf, Vicki Wilson, who when I left her office, as I walked out the door, she said, oh, guess what? One more thing, what? This is gonna take you much longer than you think. <laughs> oh, oh, I think you're right. And she said something like, and don't call me until you're done. 
For Eleanor, his editor goaded him along by asking for chapters along the way. That, and the moment in time in which he was writing, helped inform his narrative. The things that happened that made it the book it was happened between years seven and year nine, like or but year six and year nine. Those were the years that the book became the book it became, not the first five. The first five were just getting to know you. The, the whole arc, I mean, I could never write this kind of book. I might be able to write a book about an event or um, something like that in, in, in three to five years. But this kind of book, Cradle to Grave, the way I've been doing them and the way it Seven to nine, those years have been the crucial defining years for being the book it became. The election of the fraud who became president in 2017 became absolutely what made my book three-dimensional. It, Eleanor Roosevelt suddenly popped out of the book like a pop-up character because everything she stood for, her beliefs in democracy, which I would have glazed over had I been telling you about them in the sense that they would just sound like something you'd hear a, a docent telling you, no offense to docents, the docents at the Hyde Park Museum are some of the best in the world, but the docent telling you that was historical. Everything would have been historical and it all would have had a sort of sheen of historic, historicity. Instead, it was suddenly real again, everything, fascism, just the word fascism, American fascism, the concept of American fascism, civil rights in terms of her recognition of race and understanding of race, the recognition of the Southern wing of the Democratic Party, which had FDR in a, you know, in a headlock. A minority had the country in a headlock. The, the programs of the New Deal were going through because FDR, prided himself on being able to manipulate and get what he wanted from this Southern wing of the party. It was also, of course, why he was not responding at all on the question of lynching. That all became very clear to me as I was going through that this all had to be seen in its, in much clearer light. It is astonishing how much the, the world of the present informed my own understanding of those events of the past that had defined Eleanor's life as first lady. When you're talking, I'm trying to imagine, you know, I'm sure your family felt like they were living with Eleanor Roosevelt and all the cast of characters. And Donald but, Trump. but how did you, or how does one organize a life like this, the way that you've had to, I know how I've done it with slice of life, but with cradle to grave, how did you, that day you were sitting in the library and you're terrified because you see these carts coming in with more papers. How did you how did you handle the, the assignment before you? You suddenly raised something. I'm going to get to that question in one sec, but I want to insert something, which is I think the most incredible, incredibly difficult thing to handle and sustain over the years it takes to write a cradle grave biography is the following. And it, it happened to me with Eleanor, but I think it happens in general. My second day of panic and horror at the Hyde Park, at Hyde Park when I was doing my research was when I started noticing that every day a group of five four to five young men, all in nearly identical or identically ripped and identically cargoed shorts and flip-flops would flip-flop into the reading room and with really enormous pieces of equipment that were all completely foreign to baby boomer me. These were definitely millennials and they definitely had t digital magic at their disposal, began hoovering up massive amounts of material letters, pictures, photographs, all, all completely, I mean, they were, they were completely um, within their 
rights to do that. And, and they were doing what they were doing. I still did everything by hand and or I would literally be reading the letter. Eleanor's letter to Lorena Hickok would be on my right and on my left is my laptop. And I'm, you know, I'm transcribing basically, or I'm taking from it the quote, or, you know, I'm reading through, I'm carefully reading through the entire correspondence. I'm doing what a, what a scholar, researcher, writer does, you know, just absorbing the material in your, into your brain and, and you're beginning to make some notes and you're beginning to start writing a little bit and so forth. Um, but these guys, what were they doing? Who were they? Who were those guys? You know, it's like right out of uh, Butch Cassidy. Well, guess what? They were Ken Burns's guys. They were doing the Ken Burns 99 part special on the Roosevelt. And so that happened. I'm telling you every season, every season I was at work, every publishing season, you know, uh, spring, fall, spring from January to June and I guess summer, but every season, one, two or three Roosevelt books would emerge sometimes directly like Eleanor and her father, Eleanor and labor, every, uh, um, another book about Lorena Hickok. Oh no, wait, another book about Lorena Hickok. Oh wait, no, a novel about Lorena. So it, the, I could never have gone through the just seasickness of watching your subject be kind of, but had I been a first time writer, I would have lost it. I mean, I could, I don't know. I, it, it had, you had to know that it's okay. You know, your book will find its way. And, and, you know, you had to keep the mantra, just keep your head down. Don't wear cargo shorts. Don't rip your t-shirts or, or flip-flop in there. Just do it your slow way. Even with the contract and the knowledge that somebody was on the other end waiting for you to produce this, you felt this insecurity that I think everybody feels as they're marinating in their work, trying to make, to sort it out. So it's so interesting to hear you say that it was world events, you know, that the bizarre moment in time in which we were living that helped inform you. And yet at the same time, you know, you knew you had to do it. This, you're not like a rookie or somebody without a contract who's trying to figure out that raison d'etre for their... Right. And, yeah. and also, by the way, I had enormous support from my agent, Melanie Jackson, and from Alice Mayhew, the, my editor. Mm -hmm. Both these women were incredibly supportive about how this book had a place in the world. And I always felt like, wow, I am, I am working with someone here who really cares, deeply cares about this subject. It wasn't just the book. So, so how did you literally wake up every morning and say, here's what I'm going to do? I do two really simple things. One, I create a file that I call Chrono, C-H-R-O-N-O, Chrono Time. Um, it's a time file that every single thing I come across about Eleanor Roosevelt, theoretically, let's hope, goes into that file. So it is on a timeline, start, starting in her case, it was around, I think 18, 1830s was where I began seeing information that I thought was gonna be relevant to her birth in 1884, up through 1962. And every single thing goes into the chrono file. Every person who becomes an important character goes into a, well, a file of their own ultimately, but they start in a personae file and then go to their own file Every idea that is important begin, begins in an ideas file that then breaks out into individual ideas. So those basic things of chronology, characters, and, and ideas or themes, there's a master file and breakouts underneath that. So that's how all information goes in there. Now, I also research and file in a card file, a color-coordinated four by six set of index cards that with Wyeth, for instance, was about this big, 
with Eleanor, there was, I think about ultimately four boxes uh, this way. And Eleanor's green, Franklin is blue. The children are all yellow. The Oyster Bay Roosevelt's were red. Mamar was purple, uh, born to the purple, of course. Mamar was purple, that's it. And that keeps things really simple. You find a fact about Eleanor, it goes on a green card. It goes into a chron chronologically stored set of cards. When I get to that section, those cards come out. I arrange, I, I, you know, arrange them and flop them around and, and sometimes lay them out on the floor. That's all sort of meat and potatoes. And on a large bulletin board next to his desk, he built a master outline. And I also, strangely enough, had files on my laptop, which has a corkboard uh, screensaver that looks a lot like this board, so that I actually was able to graphically match up against the real bulletin board on the bulletin board on the, on the laptop, the files that were needed. Then a, a central outline begins to appear that it took me, I'm not kidding you, three years to, to actually get an set an outline that was working. I thought I had a beginning that would take me maybe 30 to 50 pages to do that was so complicated. And it was about Eleanor's father and about the Roosevelt family. I thought that was all 30 pages and one chapter. Well, to actually tell the story, I turned in 300 pages to Alice and she read them and was enthused and said, wow, how could anybody have missed all this? This is magnificent, it's so interesting. Wait, where does Eleanor's, where are we gonna start? Where are we gonna start Eleanor here? I mean, this is all very interesting and wonderful, but literally where is the reader going to begin to say to him or herself or themselves, I am reading a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. And she was right. And I literally took the 300 pages home and put them aside and began the book over again um, at page one. And so that was three years in. Um, and there were, nothing was wasted. It was just, that's how long it took to figure out how this book was gonna begin and what was gonna happen in the first five chapters, let's say. I think everybody struggles sometimes a bit in the, with the beginnings of a book like this. And so that's something to forgive yourself for right off. But a finally an outline was fairly fixed and that began, that appeared up here on this bulletin board. And um, then, it's, then it becomes, the point here being, it is horrifying how slowly it goes. When you have so many characters, Eleanor met everybody. She went everywhere. First World War, depression, second world. I mean, it's just no end of massive, massive mountain peaks. As you cross this, your snowshoes on, you're exhausted, everyone around you can't stand it anymore and you just keep going. There really finally came a day where I realized I would call her when I spoke about her to someone or when I would suddenly speak, I suddenly started hearing myself saying, wow, Eleanor finally got to Little Rock today. And I'm like, yeah, Eleanor, Eleanor, Eleanor. And I finally was, she and I were, insane. I, I finally was, I was in love with this woman. I, I was, I was in, a, in the sense of, I could truly love her for who she was. She was no longer Mrs. Roosevelt, you know, historical figure. I was in it with her. I was following her. I was, you know, her Boswell. I was, I was, I was, I was trying to do the best I could not to do any harm. And um, part of, part of my feeling of Eleanor-ness was it, it just stripped away everything. And um, I think that's where you finally end up after, after all with some, with, with, you know, you do end up pretty close. 
That's David McAllis, author of the biography, Eleanor, on the 10-year process of examining and writing her life. We spoke via Zoom on February 11, 2021. You can hear more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio. Bio.